Welcome to the Behold Do Good podcast. We're your hosts, Todd and Ashley Marchant, and this show is about strengthening families through whole being health. At a time when there is so much that can distract, discourage, and disconnect us, our family is on a journey that is led by three core questions. What whole being practices can we implement so every member of our family can have increased capacity, save your life more deeply, and use their gifts to do good? How do we translate and apply what we learn into simple, tiny habits that work amidst the demands of life? And how can we use our increased capacity to better care for others in our family, community, and throughout the world? Each month, our family focuses on one core area of whole being health. We take the biggest challenges we're facing in that area, seek out answers and direction, and do all we can to implement what we learn all the while sharing our journey through this podcast so you can learn and grow alongside us. We joyfully invite you and your family to join us on this whole being health journey. Thanks for listening to today's episode. It's an exciting one for us as it's the first interview we recorded since we decided to focus on strengthening families and to do the majority of interviews with both Ashley and I together. This month's focus for our family is on strengthening our physical well-being. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Drew Ramsey about what foods are some of the most important, particularly for nourishing good mental health. For this episode, we had the opportunity to interview Sarah Ladin, not on what to feed our families, but on how to feed them in a way that leads to joy, connection, trust, and autonomy. This is part two of that interview, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. I do want to speak to this just for a minute because I have a genuine question about it. And I think that it'll help a little bit with that mindset to help create more of that warm environment. But is there a correlation when kids struggle with food when they're little with eating disorders when they're older? Does that make sense? (laughs) It it does. I mean, not necessarily, right? So eating disorders we know are rarely about food. Hmm. And I know that that doesn't make a lot of sense. Eating disorders are more often a way that we cope with a situation. They, they develop as a coping mechanism to something else. Um, so people who struggle with eating disorders aren't necessarily using it as a way to control like the the food is just something that's in their sphere that they can control right but it's never really about the food um Mm. so it's often just a means of control if your life feels out of control if if you you need that sense of of you know ownership of your own self you can control your food environment um so it's not necessarily really linked to feeding and food um but you know, what can happen is if a child has a relationship with food that is borderline disordered, um, and I'm not saying eating disordered, more dis- a disordered relationship can develop when we categorize foods as good and bad, when we categorize foods as healthy and unhealthy, when we develop a restrictive mindset, you know? And so if you grow up in a household where, that's sort of what you're taught. Um, that's a hard thing 
to sort of navigate the world in, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's really essentially teaching diet culture at a very young age to very young children mm-hmm. um, and kind of indoctrinating kids in diet culture um, is, is a lot of, I think, what we see this healthification of everything, right? This idea that, again, we have to eat a diet that is, you know, as clean as possible, right? This idea of clean eating. And what that's really doing is setting kids up potentially for, you know, a cycle of, of binge eating, right? Mm-hmm. Because if, if your home is really restricted in, in terms of what foods you're offering, you know, you can't control that food environment forever. Um, and your children go out in the world and we want them to go out in the world having developed a really healthy relationship with food. And by that, I mean, a child who is sort of what we call eating competent. So they're able to eat enough for themselves. They're able to love food, but not hyper fixate on it. Mm-hmm. They're able to, you know, go out to a friend's house and not panic if there's something on the menu that they don't want to eat, right? It's just this mm-hmm. way of navigating the world with food where it's just a part of life and you're not hyper fixated on it. It's not causing, you know, daily stress. Um, I mean, those are the kids that I'm hoping to raise. Um, so, but yeah, I would say not necessarily a correlation between, you know, a picky eater and then one who grows up to develop an eating disorder. Cause they're just, they're two different lines of, um, but the other thing that I'd say is you know, one of the suggestions that I often give to parents that can really be a game changer is if you are currently pre-plating your kid's food, you know, you, you go, you cook the meal, you go over to the stove, you're putting all the food on the plate and you bring it to the table. An experiment is to try serving food family style. So bringing all of the food to the center of the table and allowing your children to self-select which of those foods they want and to self-serve themselves. And I hear from parents all the time, I have a two-year-old, they can't self-serve themselves pasta. Of course they can. Um, so you need to get a little creative. And this also adds to you know some of the fun in the feeding environment. So for example, we use a lot of tongs at our house mm. um, and I have all of these like seasonal tongs. So right now we have like little red mittens um, oh, and we'll be swapping so them out because you know spring is here, but... Yeah. And so like things like that, tongs are really helpful Mm -hmm. for self-serving. There's also like some, like they almost look like double spoons um, for serving pasta, but anything that you can use with your kids to get them really excited and really engaged at the table, Mm -hmm. sometimes even just like little fun toothpicks. Um, But once they are invited to the table to be a real participant in the meal, to pass food to each other, to, you know, again, decide, do you want some of this? Yes, this is how much I want. Um, And no, I don't want any of that right now. And really giving them the autonomy at the table to feel self-assured and to feel like you trust them in this moment to decide what they're going to put on their plate. That often is such a game changer in terms of changing the tone and tenor of the meal and really just kind of eliminating that stress. And even if you're feeling the stress internally, um, 
you know, I, I would just invite parents to try that even for a week and just see sort of just the joy and the just kind of excitement that that brings back, back to the family table. Mm, it's so interesting that you're saying that, Sarah, because I'm, I'm just thinking about, and we've actually talked about this before, but some of the meals that are consistently the most successful for us are the ones where it's like, create your own, you know, yeah, like yes. tacos, tacos, here's yes. all the toppings that you make your own taco or a, some type of, you know, rice bowl where yeah. there's all the different toppings and you put in the toppings you want and in, into that, you know, rice bowl or even yogurt parfaits and you put the toppings you want. It's like, whenever we do something like that, it's yeah. like, everyone is happy. Everyone's mm-hmm. excited. And it's because they, I'm hearing you, I'm realizing they have autonomy. They have control about yeah. what they're creating there you know, for dinner. And one of the follow-up questions that keeps coming, you know, back to me, and it's, you mentioned earlier that one of the keys is having a good schedule for snacking. Hey everyone, it's Todd. As I was asking that last question, our recording software had a little blip and it turned off the recording. And relatively quickly, I was able to get the recording turned back on. But in that small window of time in between, we started having offline conversation with Sarah that led to her sharing some additional wonderful wisdom. And because I turned the recording software back on relatively quickly, we actually caught most of that wisdom and I really wanted to share it with you. But I couldn't find a natural way to try to tie it all together by editing and inserting in some form of a question. And so I just figured I'd tell you exactly what happened so that you could enjoy this additional wisdom from her before we got back to the snacking question I was asking. So here you go. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think parents just need to talk with somebody and understand like, so there's a lot of, you know, people who think that there's a feeding issue. And I mean, certainly there are lots of feeding issues out there. Um, I think it's about 25% of, uh, of eaters are identified as having some sort of feeding, um, feeding issues. But within that, there is a lot of misperceived feeding issues by parents. And some of that is, again, because our perception of what is normal is so skewed by what is fed to us by the media and by social media in particular. I mean, if you're seeing all of these beautiful bento boxes with, you know, eight different kinds of rainbow fruit and vegetables, or you're seeing kids eating quinoa and sushi and salmon, and your child doesn't do that, there's a panic that you're Mm -hmm. doing something wrong. When sometimes that, um, that picture that we're seeing isn't, isn't necessarily reality. Um, And another thing is, you know, if you have been feeding your, your baby all along, and, and you're so proud, they're a great eater, they're eating the avocado, they're eating the you know, the salmon, they're, they're just, it's a beautiful. Uh-huh. And then around like two years, you start seeing some of those foods fall off. You start hearing no a lot. All mm-hmm. of their favorite foods are suddenly, you know, not their favorite foods anymore. They don't want anything to do with what their prior feeding life looked like. That's very common. That's something called food neophobia. And it's mm-hmm. literally a fear of food. And that happens to all children around that age. Oh, um, so I often equate it sort of like to like a, a sleep jag. Like, you know, when you're kind of lear- your child is learning to sleep and we know that we can anticipate there are certain developmental times when they're young, when their sleep is just going to go haywire. And it's doing that 
because they're growing, because like all of these developmental milestones are happening and it's sort of messing with their sleep schedule, right? Well, we don't necessarily anticipate the same thing happening with their eating habits, but that's exactly what happens like for several years during toddlerhood. And because parents aren't aware of this and we're not teaching parents about it, oftentimes what happens is we kind of overly correct for that. And we think, oh, something happened. Um, you know, they're not eating the same foods. And now I want to get nutrition into them. So I know they eat sort of this limited scope of foods. So I'm only going to serve this, these limited preferred foods because I don't know what's happening. So I think sort of when you have the knowledge, when you can anticipate sort of these developmental stages happening, you're more empowered to say, nope, we're going to stay the course. We're going to keep offering foods, even if they're not eating it, because we're giving them autonomy, because we know this is a phase that, you know, mm. hopefully most kids outgrow. Um, but again, it's that it's that real sort of lack of information and the ability to sort of anticipate what's coming next in your feeding journey. Yes, totally. That, that makes so much sense. So Todd, I know you wanted to ask about snacking. Yeah, yeah there's just this question I have because mm. it, it seems mm. so clear that some of the keys yeah. to this whole experience is is one, the mealtimes themselves are really, really important. And then having the scheduled snacks yeah. you, you mentioned. And so it feels like grazing where the kids have autonomy to snack whenever they want to snack. That yeah. autonomy is actually counter to the autonomy we're trying to create at the mealtime yep. or the exposure we're trying to create at the mealtime. Yep. And so that's one thing that I think sometimes I've, I've been thinking, oh man, it would be so nice when I, when my kids just get their own snack, you know, and they, yep. they kind of do their own thing and it's not coming to me every time they, you know, need food or want food. So I'm just wondering, as you think about that schedule, yep. you know, what, what does control the right level of control yep. look like mm-hmm. for, for snacking versus yep. the mealtime? And, sure. and I'll just toss in now that one of the things for us is our kids and it's led, led by one child in particular, really like bedtime snacks. It's like yep. a part of their routine. <laughs> and so I'd also love as a part of this whole snacking response sure. for you to address, you know, what, what's your perspective on bedtime snacks? Yep. Absolutely. So the first thing I'll say is that, you know, depending on the age of your child, um, you give them sort of an appropriate level of autonomy with snacking. Um, So if we're talking about, you know, a younger child, a child under 10, you know, you're still really in charge of the what, where, and when of all, all food occasions during the day, including snacking. So it, it is more work, I will say, to be really sort of thoughtful and intentional with snacks. Um, Because you're, you're already planning three meals a day. And now somebody's saying to you, wait, you have to plan two or three additional snacks. And those should look like sort of mini meals, not just like a quick, like you said, a quick handout. That's a lot of work. And that is true. Um, But it's intentional work. So what you were saying about grazing. So the problem with grazing is that when we graze, we're never really hungry, and we're never really full. And so Our job as parents is we want our kids to come to the table at mealtime hungry and ready to eat. And hunger is not a bad thing, right? I mean, we don't want them to get reach a level of hunger where, you know, they turn sort of hangry, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we do want them to come to the table and be successful at eating because they're hungry. 
Um, and so grazing inhibits that. So being intentional with meals. So saying like, you know, what I like to say is snacking is a time for food, not a type of food. So I think when we think of snack foods, we do tend to think of like a type of food that's really easy and convenient that kids can just kind of go into the pantry and grab for themselves. But really when we're making snacks, we want to be thinking of them, as I said before, as mini meals. So I sort of like to, I call it my trifecta. So when you're planning snacks, you want to have uh, two of these three. So a fat, a fiber, um, or a protein. And the reason that you want those is because it, it helps with satiety, right? It gives that snack some staying power because the goal of the snack, again, is to provide nourishment and to get them through to that next meal. So if we're having snacks every, you know, two and a half or three hours, they have to get another two and a half or three hours out of that snack, right? Um, and so we do that by providing those nutrients that are going to help slow the digestion. Um, the other thing is like, again, if we're, if we're offering variety, um, at snack time and really, again, more of like a meal, then we're giving them opportunities for nourishment throughout the day. So it's not, it takes the, some of that emphasis off of those meal times, right? And when dinner comes around and your child, you know, is maybe legitimately just not interested in food, not hungry, they've been sitting all day at school, they don't want to sit at the table. If, if they've had lots of opportunities throughout the day to eat, and they've taken advantage of those opportunities, you as a parent can sort of relax and say, you know, I know that they've already at this point had, you know, lunch um, and breakfast and an after school snack and a mid morning snack, they've eaten four times today already. Um, and so there's less import put on the dinner meal, um, and less less pressure if they don't eat it. Um, now, when we get to after dinner snacks, so what I recommend is it sort of depends on when your kids go to bed. So if there's like two hours or so between when they're eating dinner and when they go to bed, they're probably going to need a snack. Um, like the thing about snacks is they're not add-ons. They're really essential for growing bodies, mm -hmm. right? As, as adults and as parents, we've come to see snacks as like something that, you know, is, is sort of like, we, we don't want to be snacking, you know, we're adding calories, we don't need this. And again, that's that diet mindset that we need to eliminate when we're talking about feeding kids. I mean, the last thing we want to do is calorie restrict a growing child, mm -hmm. right? So snacks need to be substantial enough that we're offering them calories for their growing body. So if at bedtime, they're going, you know, several hours between when they last eat dinner and when they go to bed, they, they probably do need a snack. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that I always tell parents is don't make that snack conditional on what dinner time looked like. So if you're going to offer a bedtime snack, just build it into your schedule. You're always going to offer a bedtime snack. Um, because if we make it like on nights that you don't eat a lot of dinner, you get a bedtime snack, right? Then that's playing into that, you know, I'm starting to control the what of feeding, or I'm sorry, the how much of feeding, right? Instead of my roles and responsibilities. So if you're going to offer a bedtime snack, always offer it. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, that that's sort of my my best advice on the bedtime snack. So helpful. I feel like for me, sometimes I get frustrated with mm-hmm. it because it's like, oh, I just spent so much time. We just spent so much time making this dinner and now you want more food, you know? And mm-hmm. and so just having, having, again, just a better understanding, I think will help in relieving the stress or negative yeah, and emotion it goes back for to us. That trust factor, right? Like we want to trust that like, our kids are not manipulating us. I mean, sometimes they are, but in general, like, <laughs> if if they're if they're growing, um, which all kids are at at all different phases, and that's the other thing, like with kids' growth cycles, we truly never know like when their appetites are really ramped up because they're growing. I mean, we can't see that. We just have to trust that their bodies know when they need additional calories. Their bodies also know like. Like if you ever notice, sometimes your kids will be really ravenous for a few days and then they'll go several days and you're like, I don't know what they've eaten. Um, That's very common for kids. I often say like the most consistent things about kids is their inconsistency with eating, (laughs) you know? And so as parents, we tend to intellectualize eating. So we think again of that balanced plate. What does that look like? And that is a very intellectual activity to say, I'm going to have some protein. I'm going to have some, you know, whole grains. I'm going to have, you know, half fruits and vegetables. So whatever that idea of a balanced plate looks like to us, kids truly eat innately. And so what you'll often see with children is, you know, they'll have a couple of days that are, they're eating a lot of protein. They're very protein heavy days. And then they'll have some days where like, they're like a carb monster. They're just eating carbohydrate after carbohydrate. And then maybe they'll have like, a a couple fruit days, right? And so I often counsel parents, widen your lens when you're looking at your child's diet. We don't want to compare meal to meal or even day to day. So when I do a nutritional assessment, I'm often looking at two weeks, at four weeks. Do you really want to widen that? And then truly what I find with 90, 95% of the kids that I work with is when you widen the lens, and you look for sort of new nutritional issues, you don't see them. So kids' bodies know what they need. And, you know, those couple of protein heavy, like days during the month are really going to make up for like the couple of days when you're like, they didn't eat any. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you widen the lens and when you look at it as, you know, not necessarily bad, like you're offering a balanced meal, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be choosing all of those foods at that meal. And that is okay, because that is, they're eating sort of intuitively. And that's what intuitive eating really looks like. Um, Just sort of listening to your body and not, it's not an intellectual exercise. Mm. I love just, I feel like one of the some of the main things I've taken are like calm down <laughs> and just like look at the bigger perspective. Yeah. It's it's totally. like increasing your mindfulness as a parent will really help your kids in this process. And I know we're getting near the end. Sure. I I loved how you said the thing about making it fun. So, and I had heard, I've heard a few fun things as we've been working with this one child to, to just do fun things like, and I'd loved your perspective on this, like add food coloring to food to make it fun Mm -hmm. or use little like cookie cutters and cut their sandwich out doing it fun. So I don't know if you 
have any other suggestions of just creating it to be more of a fun experience. I think fun helps replace anxiety for me when I'm more focused on the fun. You know, what's interesting that you just said that. So we have a new dog and we are working with a dog trainer and the dog has some anxiety. And she said something to me the other day that really stood out to me. So she said, the counter, the opposite of anxiety is not like calmness, right? Like, so she was saying, if your dog is anxious, you don't want to, your, your instinct is to create a calm environment, but the opposite of anxious is confidence. And so that really resonated me with feeding as well, because you do think about that. Like if you have an anxious child, you want to give them confidence and a chance to win when they're feeling anxious versus like just pacifying the situation and saying like, oh, you're really anxious. Okay. We're just gonna, we're going to be calm. We're going to just offer, you know, the foods that you like, we're not going to raise the temperature of the room. Um, But really what we need to do is find appropriate levels of challenge during those moments of anxiousness so that they can build their confidence. Um, So that was just an aside, but getting back to the, the fun piece, one of my favorite tools as a dietitian, as a mom is sprinkles. Like the more sprinkles, the better. I like, love that. <laughs> sprinkles on yogurt, sprinkles on hummus. Like really like the amount of sprinkles I go through in my own house. Um, my girls love sprinkles. Um, the other thing that I found really helpful are if you ever see like those little cupcake toppers, they almost look like toothpicks and then they'll have like a character on them or something. Those are really fun just to make like food more engaging. So if you get like, like right now we have a rotation of like, um, like some, some frozen characters. We have Anna and Elsa and like, and my four-year-old just sort of puts them on her food and like talks to her food and feeds the characters. And it's really fun. Um, So any way that you can get them to engage with the food. So I know a lot of parents will say, You know, I don't have time to do like the cute little cutouts or this or that. That's okay. Like there's, again, lots of quick and easy tricks that you can use that don't necessarily require you, the parent, to go so above and beyond that it feels like, because one of the issues with that is if you're putting so much of yourself in the, in making this fun and your kid still refuses it then like the amount of frustration you have can sometimes ramp mm. up. You're like, I did, I went above and beyond. I can get <laughs> yeah. a smiley face and you don't even like, it. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, like lots of fun things you can do. Like even things like, so we oftentimes will have like, um, like a feeding the baby session where we get all of her baby dolls And we just sit around and she feeds them and she goes in the pantry and she picks out the foods that she thinks they might like, which, you know, she ends up eating herself. Um, But just to get them sort of excited about food, um, playing restaurant is another great one. So, um, you know, if your kids, if somebody wants to be the wait staff, somebody wants to be the, you know, the host, somebody wants to be the, the busser, right? Just getting them involved and excited in the activity of the meal um, can be really fun for them. We've started doing with my older girls, um, my eight and 10 year old, one day a week, they get to plan the menu and they get to cook it. And it is so much fun for them. And they're so invested in it. 
Um, and they're going through, you know, cookbooks and they're looking online and they're just like really excited about what they're going to cook. And it's amazing to see like, they do hit all the key points of a meal. You know, mm. they're saying like, like somebody will plan this, like this salad or, you know, like it, it's just, it's a full meal and they plan dessert and it's really fun for them. And again, they just get really invested in the meal. So anytime you can do that um, and just get them excited to be there. And again, if they're, if they're not going to eat the food, that is okay. You want the dining table the family table to be a place that brings them joy and connection. Mm -hmm. And when you have sort of this just fun outlook on meals and it's less about, there's less dread to it. There's less, I know they're not going to eat this. I know, you know, somebody's going to end up crying because I'm going to, you know, because we can't give dessert until they finish this. And a lot of stress. So when we can just eliminate all of those expectations, um, it really makes feeding sort of a joy again. And is every meal going to be, you know, fun and joyful? And again, this idyllic image you had when you first had a baby, well, no, because they're kids and they're still going to fight with each other and they're still going to want to, you know, eat for two minutes and and get up and, and run outside to play with their friends. But if you can lower your level of stress at the table, um, it really does impact, you know, your children overall and the whole environment at the table. And it's just happy for me thinking about it, Sarah, because it's like creating that joyful experience for them. It's also like, I would have joy with that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's, it's actually bring the joy back to mealtime for us as parents, which obviously the two, as we've been talking about are completely connected, but I just am grateful. I'm grateful for this ability to see what the mindset shift can be and you'll just the expertise and the research behind it to give confidence in it. So maybe just one very last question as a way of just wrapping the conversation up as we, Ashley and I, with our family and anyone listening, you know, take all this wonderful insight and we go and, and seek to implement it. I'd just be curious if, you know, what, what you see as you work with families, what are some of the the biggest hurdles post learning this stuff and trying to implement it sure. that families tend that maybe we haven't talked about yet that families yeah. tend to run into and and just so we can have that in mind and have a plan for it. Yes. So I will say, and I always tell families this when I work with them: anticipate setbacks. So it's always two steps forward, three steps back. That's just the way it works. So oftentimes, particularly when you start to be more permissive with the, you know, how much and the weather of food, if your kids have not experienced that yet, if they haven't had that autonomy, when you give them that autonomy, they go to an extreme. So if you were worried about a child that wasn't eating enough, oftentimes what you'll see is they will go to the extreme of eating less, and that will feel really panicky to you. Or if you have a child who you were concerned was eating, you know, too much, whatever, you know, you had that perception and you take away sort of your control, you will often see them go to that extreme and they will eat and eat and eat. And you'll think, what did I do? But I promise when parents sort of stay the course of, you know, again, developing like this trust model, this autonomy, 
giving some control back to your child over time. And it depends on the child. It depends on the age of the child. Usually when a child is younger and we start implementing some of these strategies, you often see like within a couple weeks, real changes for an older child, you're going to see that take longer. Um, so we may be talking about a couple of months, but you know, I will say that I, I have seen this work in so many different families um, at so many different ages. I mean, I see kids from ages, you know, two, and I think I have a client right now who's 15. So, you know, it's just, you have to trust the process. And that's the scariest part of this whole thing um, is trust. It's trusting your child. It's trusting yourself. It's trusting that, you know, all of the, the sort of fears that you have about nutritional like inadequacies that it's going to be okay. Um, and this is just, this is a growing process. Um, and it's like any other part of parenting. It's, it's really hard to hand over the reins to your, to your kiddos. Um, but they can do it and they will surprise you. They really will. I mean, I think when we give our children the ability to do something, and when we say, we trust you to do this, and I know that you can do this and I know that you can listen to your body. It's amazing how, how they show up. Um, and, and just to watch that process is, and watch them blossom is really beautiful. Mm, I love that. Sarah, this has been so amazing. So good. <laughs> like, like, oh, so helpful and so realistic because I love how you are living all of these things. And I always feel like that makes it so much more powerful when the teacher is living what they're preaching. <laughs> yeah. I mean, believe me, my, you know, my girls are typical eaters, you know, I mean, the idea that like, because you're a dietitian, you have, you know, quote unquote, perfect eaters. I have three daughters. They have very different personalities and they have very different feeding personalities. It's just like, if you expect sort of that you raised all your kids in the same environment and they're all going to turn out the same, not true. <laughs> um, everybody has like their own quirks. And so my kitchen table is really like my own personal learning lab for all of this stuff, you know, and I struggle right alongside other parents. And, you know, I really put the work in, but it's, it's not easy. Feeding kids is not easy. And, you know, if that's the expectation, you're going to be disappointed. There are always going to be ups and downs. But I think at the end of the day, if your goal is not necessarily to create a perfect eater, but to create like a confident eater, um, somebody who can go out in the world and navigate, you know, food and their appetite in a way that is relaxed and joyful and that they don't hyper fixate on, on it. Like that's always my goal with working with families is helping to give that to families. Well, Sarah, we're ready to access all your resources, sign up for your <laughs> programs. Yes. And, and I am awesome. sure a, a lot of people listening will feel the same way. So I would just love to give you a chance here at the end. Where can where can people find you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so my website is the name of my company. It's betterfamilymeals.com. So you'll find lots of information on there, lots of resources. I also, as I mentioned earlier, work one-on-one -on -one with families. I do parent coaching. So I do that virtually um, sort of all across the country. And then I'm very active on Instagram. And that handle is at Better Family Meals. And I post every day. So I post all of the meals and the snacks that I'm serving my kids. 
And again, that's what I'm serving them. It's not necessarily what <laughs> what they're eating because I let them decide that. And then I, I post a lot of just helpful, you know, tips and tricks and sort of mindset work, um, particularly for parents who are struggling with with picky eaters. So just sort of a real life tutorial every day on on Instagram. Awesome. Well, we look forward to, to following you on yes. those things. And <laughs> awesome. Just thank you so so much for yeah. This was a pleasure. Yeah, awesome. thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to part two of our interview with Sarah Ladin. If you found it helpful, we would so appreciate a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also, Ashley and I are so excited to announce that the last week of this month, we'll be hosting a free five-day challenge for parents. If you have a child that is a yeller or who retreats to silence or refuses to go to school or who turns to teasing when they feel off or who acts out their difficult emotions in any way you're not sure how to respond to, this five-day challenge is for you. With a small investment of time each day that last week of April, you'll be given some simple doable tips that help you to be more mindful as a parent and a better guide for your kids in processing their difficult emotions in more healthy ways. If you're interested in joining us, head over to beholdyougood.com and click on the banner at the top of the website. Whether you're ready to join us this go around or not, we are here to be a support to you and your family and hope you have a wonderful day.